from the book of Genesis. Then Laban said to Jacob, Tell me, what shall your wages be? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. We're continuing with our series in Genesis, uh, following Jacob's month-long flight from his brother Esau and the consequences of his own actions. And before we dive in, I've got a question that I want to put out there, and it's something I want us to consider. Is anybody here familiar with the phrase, what goes around comes around? You familiar with that? Maybe you've experienced it? Do you think it's true? Is there a part of you that hopes that it is true, that our God is a just God? You know, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you'll remember that Jacob had swindled his older brother out of both his birthright and his inheritance, or and his blessing. So his mother sent him away to find a wife, hoping that Esau would, you know, kind of cool off and, you know, not murder him uh, in vengeance. And so Jacob right now, he's on this trip. Last week he encountered God, if you'll remember, who invited him into the covenant, and then this week he arrives at his destination looking for a wife, and he meets Rachel by a well. And it's interesting, as we look at our text this morning, we find that despite how far Jacob has fled from his past and how great the promise of his future is, he cannot avoid the consequences of his actions. God's not done with him yet, and he has a lesson to learn. So with that being said, we're going to do three points for today. We've got three sections of the text that I want to cover. The first is Jacob's deal. The second is Jacob's lesson. And the third is Jacob's wages. Jacob's deal, Jacob's lesson, and Jacob's wages. So with that, let's dive in. If you have your bulletins, I would encourage you to pull them out, or if you're online, you've got that uh, bulletin section that is right next to your viewing window. And turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 29, our first reading for today. You see, in our text, Jacob had met Rachel at a well and had fallen in love with her immediately. And so then he went and stayed with her family for a month, and Rachel's father... Laban, he then asks Jacob, you know, if you're going to keep working for me, if you're going to stay here for a month, what would you like to be paid? What are your wages? You know, how do we keep this going? And Laban, as you'll see in the text, he's an incredibly shrewd man. And he probably already know what Jacob's going to ask for, right? You, you see young people in love, is that something that they can hide very well? No, it's pretty obvious. And Laban's a shrewd man, right? And he says, you know, I, I'm sure he knows what's going to, what Jacob's going to ask for, but he leaves it to Jacob to make the ask a good move. Well, Jacob offers seven years of labor, seven years of indentured servitude for Rachel's hand in marriage. That's a long time. In fact, we know exactly how long that is because the average shepherd, stay with me, made ten shekels a year for their work. Ten shekels a year for their work. And the average dowry for a marriage was forty shekels. Well, a couple things on this. Jacob is no average shepherd. You remember how Esau was a man of the field, but Jacob was a man among the tents. He was the administrator for them. He was the one that kept the operation running. Everything Jacob touches turns to gold. He's got a King Midas touch. He's, he's brilliant as a manager and administrator of things. And so it's, he's not an average shepherd, first of all. Second of all, seven years is three years longer than if he was. And in that day and age, you weren't allowed to work for seven years. You could work for six, but you'd have to be released from your debt on the seventh. So extra time 
is being put into this. That seven years for Laban is worth an absolute fortune. And this is when Jacob makes his first mistake. His first mistake is that Jacob comes right out and he tells Laban what his weakness is. He lets them in on that and he, sh- he tells them what he really desires, just how valuable Rachel is to him. He expresses his desire, his need, his weakness right up front. And we see our first parallel because that's exactly what Esau did when he came to Jacob looking for stew. I am starving unto death. There's a vulnerability, a weakness that's shared there. You see the parallel? Well, it continues on. Laban says in verse 19, it is better, listen to his response. Jacob says, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel. And Laban says, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, the lawyers in this room already know where I'm going with this, right? Notice what Laban says and what he does not say. He doesn't say deal. He doesn't say, I agree. He doesn't say, I consent. He doesn't say, you know, all right, we'll we'll make that work. He says, you know, I'd prefer her to be married to you. Why don't you work for me for seven years? Crafty, right? There's just enough ambiguity in there to secure Jacob's services without a formal commitment. And Jacob, for whatever reason, goes, you know, moves headlong past the fine print, and he agrees. And we don't know why Jacob missed it, right? It could be that he was blinded by his love for Rachel, or maybe he trusted Laban because it's like, you know, I'm family. Or maybe, you know, he just, Jacob assumed that because he was the cleverest person he had ever met, no one could get one by him. You ever been there? I see a lot of head shaking, me too. So, Whatever the reason is, it doesn't turn out well for Jacob. Let's look back at our text. Jacob works his seven years for Laban, and according to the text, they just fly by. He's so excited to be married to Rachel, it just, it, it just moves right past. And he approaches Laban at the end of the seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. You know, my, the dowry is fulfilled. And he says, you know, he, he approaches him, and, and Laban says, well, hold on a second. We've got this whole wedding ceremony thing that we have to do. So he plans this elaborate wedding feast and ceremony. And back in, those, in that day and age, you know, a wedding feast, a celebration of marriage, lasts a full week. It was seven days. And so the whole community gets together to celebrate, and in all likelihood, Jacob celebrates a little too hard. Because as, you, as you'll notice in our text, he's fooled into taking Rachel's older and less attractive sister, Leah, instead. And he consummates his marriage to her. You might wonder, how in the world does that happen? Well, <laughs> you celebrate a little too hard. The, the uh, bride is veiled. They wore veils. And the tent is dark. But there's a problem, you know. There's a problem. He's not attentive. He's not aware. He's not paying attention. And it's his third mistake. And it's, it's the most significant mistake. It's an incredibly significant mistake. You know, the Bible presumes, Old and New Testament alike, that the bond created in physical union is a spiritual marriage. We don't think about that in this day and age, right? Like, like our, our mores are of a different bend, but the Bible presumes that the bond created in physical union is a spiritual marriage. There's no walking it back for Jacob. There's no getting out of it. There's no, there's no, you know, mulligan here. The two have become one flesh. He is married to Leah, and it's irrevocable. 
You know, and, and, and this, is, this is a situation I think that perhaps you have found yourself in at one point. You, you, you made a mistake or you made an error, and it was a grievous one, and there wasn't any walking it back. Uh, there was a really crafty salesman, and this is a true story, uh, at a former church uh, that I attended, and he, he could wheel and deal like nobody's business, and he wasn't… I wouldn't say he was a terrible guy, but he was the type of guy that like five minutes of conversation with him, and you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm going to go up the street because I'm really not sure this is going to work out well for me. Well, while I was attending that church, uh, he told us a story that he had been renting, a, a year before he'd been renting this really nice home, and he'd been renting it for a few years, and he'd expressed an interest that he wanted to own the home. And the homeowner said, that's great. I'm looking to sell soon. Let's have a conversation about it when your lease is up. In fact, if, you, if you're really that excited about it, we can shake on it now. So they shook on it, and they agreed on a price, and it seemed fair to both parties. And the guy had about another eight months left in his lease before he was willing to buy the home, before he was able to buy it. And so what the guy did is he was so excited because he had this deal that he had made, and he was excited about it, he started to make improvements on the home. New kitchen, refinishing the pool. I think he even redid the roof. You know, he's like, if I'm going to live in it anyway, I might as well get it up to snuff. You know, be prepared so that, uh, you know, why wait? Why pause? Well, I think you know where I'm going with this, don't you? At the end of that time, he went to go in the agreed upon price, and the guy said, you know, I just got my home reappraised, and looks like the value shot up $40,000. And I've got a buyer waiting who's ready to pay the full price for it. Sorry about your luck. And that was it. That was it. There was nothing he could do. There was no taking it back. There was no recourse. You know, I mean, I mean this, this has probably happened to you. Consider a time when someone's taken advantage of you, when you gave up something of great worth for very little. And what the hardest part about that is you know that part of the blame rests on you. As much as you were wronged, your culpability was that you were foolish or ignorant or naive, as I have been many times. Faults like this aren't only one person's mistake. It's not only one person's sin or one person's error. And you know what? At least for me, that almost makes it worse because it shatters any illusion that I would have of self-righteousness. As much as I'd like to paint myself as the good guy in every story as the hero, there's really not a single incident that I've been a part of where I haven't had some culpability. Well, Jacob, as we, you and I would be, he's outraged. He's outraged by this, right? And he cries. What, you know, he says, what have you done? By the way, this is the same tone, the same cry of outrage that God says to Cain after he murdered Abel. It's the same cry of outrage that um, the Pharaoh says to Abraham after Abraham tried to pass off his wife as a sister, and the same cry of outrage that Abimelech had to Isaac when he tried to pass off his wife as a sister, did the same dang thing. Uh, it's the same cry of outrage that Rebekah warned Jacob of when he swindled Esau in the first place. Beware of what you have done. It's the cry of the deceived. It's the cry of the betrayed. It's the cry of the one without recourse. Well, Laban, he holds all the cards because he's among his own people, right? Laban is in his land surrounded by his people. And his response to Jacob's cry of, what have you done, is this. He says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It's not so done in our country to put the younger before the firstborn. 
and suddenly the events of Jacob's past are focused in perfect clarity. Because that wasn't supposed to be done in Jacob's country either, was it? That the younger would take the place of the firstborn. But Jacob had taken advantage of his brother Esau's weakness and swindled his birthright. And Jacob had taken advantage of his father Isaac's blindness and stole Esau's blessing in the dark. And all of a sudden, all of the past events of Jacob's life are being flashed before him, and he sees himself in the deception that he has experienced, which brings us to our second point, Jacob's lesson. You know, I said earlier that despite how far Jacob has fled from his past, despite how far he's fled from the actions of his past, and despite his promise of a future, that great hope and promise that he has in his relationship with God, he cannot avoid the consequences of his actions in the present. And in most cases, that's the rule. That's the rule for you and for me. If you live long enough and are attentive enough to your circumstances, you notice that most people don't get away with anything. Like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. He committed the perfect murder, right? And he never would have been caught, but his guilt drove him to confession. Or you think of the narrator in Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, right? The beating of that heart drove him mad so much so that he directed the police officers to rip up the floorboards in order to confess his guilt. Most people don't seem to be able to get away with anything. And even in circumstances where justice isn't as poetic as it is for Jacob, there is a price that we all pay for our sins. And you know, we don't become Christians in order to avoid the earthly consequences of our sin. Now, I want to be careful here, and I want you to hear this, this caveat. This is, this is incredibly important. Christian justice isn't karma. You guys hear what I'm saying? Christian justice isn't karma. Here's what I mean by this. Our life circumstances, our current life circumstances, are not all the results of our past sins, and certainly our station in life is not the result of actions in a past life, right? It's not that simple. It's not that cut and dry. It's not a one-for-one. However, it is true that whenever we do sin, we are liable for the consequences of that sin, and God does not always preserve us from the lessons we learn from those consequences, and nor should He because He loves us. You know, one of my sons has discovered lying, and I actually have to start being careful, right, because there's a small chance that someday, ten years from now, they're going to be watching one of these, and they're going to be like, Dad, you really sold me out hardcore. It's like, sorry, buddy. Um… So I'm going to say one of my sons. You can, you can fill in the blanks. One of my sons discovered lying, and uh, he had a minor accident last week, and he decided to put his soiled clothes back in the drawer so he wouldn't notice, right, and change himself and put new ones on. And, and, and you know, and it was clever enough to keep us off the scent for a few hours. You know, it's not like I check what clothes he's wearing every 10 minutes, you know. So, so like, he's like, yeah, I made it. Got away with it. This life is good. But, of course, you know, we go to change him later for bed, and we find out And when we confronted him, uh, he's of the temperament where he just burst into tears because this child hates being in trouble, and he felt terrible. You know anybody like that? Like, you know, anytime the teacher would even look at you the wrong way, you just crumbled? That's my son. And And you know this. Every parent in the room knows this, right? This is the point. This is the point where you feel terrible because they feel terrible. But you know, you know that you have to demonstrate your love for them while at the same time sticking to the known consequence, right? It's a fine line. 
Now, before you call me a monster for punishing him for this, it was like a brief timeout, okay? So save your emails. But I will say, you know, I, I, I will say, it was a, it was a, you know, it's a fine line that you walk. Like, buddy, I love you. This doesn't set, take you from me. I'm not separated from you. But you got to learn. There's a lesson here. You know, as Hebrews 12 tells us, God disciplines those that He loves. And sometimes that's facing the consequences of our actions, you know. A good boss does the same thing. If you make a mistake as an employee, you know, a good boss brings attention to the mistake or to the offense, because what's the alternative? Well, you can either overreact and you can lose that employee's trust, or you could ignore the offense and then the employee's walking on eggshells until they know you know, that it's been dealt with, because they know that you know, right? You've got to address things head on. In Laban's deception, Jacob is mercifully confronted with the same sense of loss and betrayal that he had visited on his own brother Esau. It's his lesson, and in Laban, he is confronted with the worst part of himself. Now, is there anybody else like me in this room or online who has, who has seen the worst part of themselves in someone else, and it took that in order for you to recognize your own sins or deficiencies or faults? That's most of us. There's a lesson to be learned here, and Jacob has a choice that follows it. Does he perpetuate, and here's an important choice that he has, right? He's been caught out. He, he sees the damage that he's done, and it's been done back to him, and he's got two roads he can take now. Does he go down the road of bitterness and betrayal, resentment and revenge, and just keep the cycle going? I'll get you worse. I will do worse to the world than it has done to me. Or does he take this opportunity and accept his due and shoulder his responsibility and move forward to become something better? It's an open question for everybody when they're faced with these circumstances. You and I have the same choice when we experience a calamity. Do I move forward in repentance and seek restoration, or do I scream at the perceived injustice of life and harden myself and become bitter and resentful? Well, Jacob decides to accept the hand that he has been dealt. If you look at your text, what he does is he finishes his marriage ceremony, and he agrees to work for another seven years to marry Rachel. He, he agrees to pay the dowry in full with his wages, which brings us to our third and final point for this morning, Jacob's wages. Jacob's wages. As Jacob and Laban's story goes on, there's this continual struggle and continual dynamic over Jacob's wages. The word sakar is used over and over again because Laban keeps changing the terms of Jacob's wages, and Jacob keeps seeking to get paid the amount that he is owed. And in the end, he manages to come away with some amount of wealth. And he has managed to learn his lesson, the cost of betraying Esau by being betrayed himself. But he hasn't settled his accounts. You know, even, even learning his lesson, even, you know, eventually being forgiven by Esau, spoiler alert, um, it doesn't wipe away the damage that he has done and the residual cost to both himself and to his family. Jacob has many bitter lessons to learn that will be lived out in his story, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. You know, a lesson learned is not a debt repaid. And you know this instinctively to be true. You know that's true. I don't even have to explain it to you. you know, imagine for a moment that you have a ledger, and in that ledger was every debt that you have accumulated over the course of your life. 
Start thinking about those, right? What, what are the debts you've accumulated? You borrowed something and didn't return it. You failed to fulfill a commitment. You acted maliciously towards someone. You betrayed someone's trust. Now, it's likely that all of this has happened to you since then. And God willing, you learned your lesson, you shouldered your responsibility, you accepted your due, and you're changed. But does that cross out the marks in the ledger? Do you even have the ability to make amends to every person you have harmed? Do you have ability to make amends to God for the sin that you have brought into His creation? Or is that beyond your ability? You know, that's the problem with sin, and that's why sin is so pernicious. You know, every sin we commit, we're not wise enough to even see the full effects, the full ripples of the outcome of that. It's like dropping a boulder into a lake, right? Like, you, you can't see how far that goes. And that's why the penalty is so severe for sin. Romans chapter 6 is very clear about this. Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. So what are we to do? If a lesson learned is not a debt repaid, what are we to do? What's Jacob to do? Well, last week you'll remember that Jacob was invited into this covenant with God. You remember that? God said, I'll come to you and I'll invite you into this covenant, into this relationship with me. And it's the same God that established the same covenant with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Now, Jacob was skeptical, right? He was half-hearted at least. But it's a really interesting thing that back when God first established this covenant with Abraham, God used a really peculiar phrase. When God started this covenant, He used a really peculiar phrase. He said this. He said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your sakar is very great. You see, the word sakar it means reward, and it means wage. What God promised to Abraham and to Jacob in inviting them into His covenant and what He promises with us is that He is sufficient to pay the debts for all of our sins. The wage that we have in Him, and it's not earned, it's given, is sufficient to pay for our, our, all of our sins. He is sufficient to clear our ledger to free us from this existential nightmare of trying to justify our own existence and trying to do so with good deeds and achievement. What God is saying, what He promised to Jacob, and what Jacob didn't get at the time, is I am enough. I'm enough. That's why Jesus Christ died to pay for what you and I could not. Or to finish that verse in Romans, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know, that doesn't prevent us from experiencing the earthly consequences of our sin. That doesn't, ex doesn't prevent us from experiencing the lessons that we have to learn along the way, just as Jacob did. But as we enter into that covenant with God that He has promised us as descendants of Abraham, we rest in the knowledge that God is enough, that He is our reward, He is our wage, and He is sufficient and that's enough for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You walk with us through the lessons that we have to learn, that You give us the courage and strength to face them by the power of Your Holy Spirit, the humility to face them and grow, 
and the ultimate assurance, God, that whatever the outcome, you are our very great reward. That there's no trial that we can face, no suffering that we can experience that wipes out what we have waiting for us with you. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.